And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we are back. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. And of course, I would be just a big old jerk if I didn't talk to you about today's episode sponsor. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. They can help you hire software developers. We know that it's difficult. They can help you build a software team quickly and affordably. And they have the platform, a proprietary platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. Now, my friends. Thank you for coming back to listen to us because we have an episode today that is kind of thrilling me to the tips of my toes. Uh, as you all know, I I like women. I, I like to champion women. I like to support women. I like to talk about things like gender equity, and I like to talk about women in technology and STEMinists and this, this all falls very much into things that make me excited and things that I'm passionate about. And today, we have a guest that has just been handed to me on a silver platter. We're going to have a fantastic conversation with Katika Roy. And Katika is founder and CEO of Pipeline Equity. Katika, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, this and this is going to be fun. And I just I want to hop right into it because we're going to have an onion and some layers to peel for sure. <laughs> and I'm just going to I'm going to ask you, Katika, just tell us tell us about your journey. My journey to founding Pipeline, uh, you know, it really is three parts. Uh, I will tell them quickly, but all of them matter in terms okay. of how I got to founding Pipeline five and a half years ago. Setting an um, expectation. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> people say, oh, no, three parts. I'm no, going to be asleep no, by the end. But I promise great. you won't. <laughs> so uh, the first uh, is uh, my family's history. The second is my place in my family. And the third is my experience in the workforce. Yeah. So the first, in terms of my family story, I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. My mother was the immigrant. She was born in 1939, the year that World War II began, on the Isle of Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Isles of uh, Great Britain. And uh, in 1940, when France fell to the German army, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles, and so he evacuated them. And he evacuated 5,000 children uh, from the Channel Isles to mainland England, and my mother was one of those children. Oh, wow. She was 18 months old, the youngest of five kids, separated from her mother and four siblings, placed into, into an orphanage and adopted a year later. She came to America when she was 21, when she was an emancipated adult, for equality and opportunity. So that's my mother. The that's other... Awesome. Yeah, she yeah, was yeah, incredibly I... strong and... <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, just imagine like how, how how strong she had to have been to to make it through all of that. What about your dad? 
And so my dad was a refugee. He escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. His, uh, his decision um, was difficult, not only because he was risking his life, life, but also the lives of my three oldest sisters, who were three, seven, and eight at the time. With the help of Hungarian freedom fighters, they walked across a minefield, crossed the border, and arrived to a refugee camp in Austria. And less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the United States on Christmas Day, 1956, and they were on that plane. Oh, man, that, that's quite a history. <laughs> it is. And so what one of the key so so two really quick things about that. One is that you know, as a parent, I have two kids, they're 11 and 15. And what I think about is going from risking your children's lives to walk to watching them climb the stairs of Air Force One to freedom. And that I sit here in this conversation with you and have the opportunity to found the startup pipeline that I founded because one person in a position of power said not on my watch this will not happen and that was key to why i started pipeline my company yeah wow <laughs> well so, so wait wait wait. what about your place in the family so my place in the family is that i'm the youngest of six kids five girls and so a lot of the things that justice ruth bader ginsburg fought for in her lifetime were things that i saw impact my sisters and their families and their economic well-being so things like the ability to get a credit card as a woman without a male co-signer the ability to get an apartment or housing uh, without a male co-signer the ability to get a business loan without a male co-signer all of those things were illegal in my lifetime. And I watched the reality of them in in my family and yeah. thought, oh my gosh, this makes no sense. I mean, just to give you a sense of that, my oldest sister came here when she was eight. She didn't speak any English. And 10 years later, she graduated as the valedictorian of her high school class. Oh, wow. What an incredible <laughs> family. My goodness. These are not people who suffer for intellect, right? And yeah, so, for sure. And yet she had laws that were on the books that barred her from full economic opportunity and the ability to, you know, enjoy that not only for herself, but also for her family. Well, so what you're talking about here is a a very, I guess, tactical, emotional, spiritual, philosophical reason to be, you know, like how you came to be here and care about things like gender equity mm-hmm. and representation and inclusion. Talk to us a little bit about that journey. Like, you know, you have a, an immigrant mother, a refugee uh, father, you know, you have older siblings who are clearly just brilliant. How did that background bring you to what you do today? So... <laughs> Yeah, and then I'll t- I can also add on um, my experience in the workforce. So when I was a little girl, my, like most little girls, um, I, I was told that if I worked hard and did well in school, I could be anything that I want yes. to be. And we are well intended when we tell little girls uh, that that that, and it's not true. I think we almost believe it too. 
We do, but it's not true. Like, yeah, we kind of it's like not in, a, true. in an abstract sort of way. Yeah, like but... you can be anything you want to be. Well, not we really, really. Even can except you know society. <laughs> yeah, and we don't yeah. teach them about the biases that they'll face. Right. That those biases are not about them or their worth. Right. And we don't teach them how to combat those. I, I'll talk about how I do that with my daughter in just a minute. But I want with the other piece of what. So I, you know, I was a political science major, uh, undergrad economics, and I learned a lot about women's rights. I was an intern in Washington, D.C. And then when I got to the, even met Gloria Steinem, and then when I got to the labor force, thought, I just don't know that this really applies anymore. And, and, you know, I just, I really fundamentally had taken that ethos of like, if I work hard and do well in school, I can be anything I want to be. Yeah. So I turned really from supporting women's rights. Not that I didn't support women's rights. I just didn't really see it and its sure. current applicability applicability with really the, and, and focused on building my career with the idea that my gender wouldn't impede my opportunity. Right. So, so there was a, a fundamental misunderstanding of like external forces that could prevent you from being everything that you wanted to be. Yes, is that I would say experience, that's very accurate. And experience is a great teacher. Yeah, you know, the world tells you no often enough and you come to expect it kind of deal. Now I, I completely understand. Um, well, so so how did you how did you overcome that? So I, I'm a the last part of sort of my experience in the workforce, which is that I'm a breadwinner mom who fought to be paid equitably and twice in one. Yeah, I am the sole breadwinner for a family of four. I, uh, I will tell you one quick story, um, which is that, uh, I, when I was on maternity leave with my daughter, who's my youngest, my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. And when I came back, I was asked, I had a team that I was managing. I was asked to, uh, two days after I came back from maternity leave, I was asked to take on a second team, two weeks later, a third team, my male colleague, uh, who was one pay grade higher than I was, was asked to take on one additional team. Yeah. And he also received additional compensation for that new team. And I received nothing. Right. So I went to HR and my new manager and said, how do I, uh, like, how do you want to make, like, this is great opportunity, wonderful timing. How do you want to make me whole on my comp compensation? And nothing happened for two months. And I was a litigation paralegal. <clears throat> It was my first job out of college. And I thought something, there has got to be something on the books that makes this illegal. Sure. And so I found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which changed the statute of limitations for equal pay. And it changed that it essentially from when the decision was made around pay yeah. to when you are actually paid. And then the statute of limitations starts over every time you're paid. So I called HR and said, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? Oh my gosh, and what did they say? <laughs> so there was a pregnant pause on the other side. And uh, and then what happened was they came back to me. They increased my level, increased my pay and gave me back pay. Yeah, And it was really in that moment, 
you know, certainly it's a story of success, but also I thought, why do I have to research my rights in order to be treated fairly? Like I was a top performer. I've been not the expectation. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I've been promoted seven times in eight years, like clearly a top performer and still like I'm having to fight this. And it was really in that moment that my journey to pipeline began. It took me a while longer to actually found pipeline yeah, But it was that catalyst. And then the understanding, because of course, I'd also inherited two teams. So I inherited all the inequitable pay uh, issues on those teams Yeah, that I thought this is a huge issue and we need to figure out how to actually solve it once and for all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really fascinating. Um, I, I find it, it particularly interesting. So, so some of our listeners know, some of you might not. Uh, I actually have my my very very own special joy of a uh, litigation situation with a with a gender based hostile work environment. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> I understand. I feel like I understand your story a little bit more than most because much like you, uh, that experience and and some others certainly kind of galvanized mm-hmm. my sense of purpose around gender equity and representation in the workforce and DEIB. So I, uh, you know, I, I hate to hear those stories, but I absolutely love to learn about the women who become advocates and activists for their own success and for, for all women, really, mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. Um, and all marginalized people. I mean, let's be real. A win for one of us is a win for all of us. That's right. Yeah. Well, so tell us about, yeah, tell us about Pipeline. You know, I, I, I'm curious, what, what is your, your day-to-day? What's your purpose, your mission? Our mission is to bend the arc of history and make gender equity a reality in our lifetime. We uh, started with the idea, a hypothesis, I'm a gender economist and a researcher by trade. Uh, so. <laughs> I, just, I want you to know that when I formed Innovator, I, the way that I talk about that is that I had a hypothesis. I was like, if we do this, then we will see this. And uh, so I, I love that you're speaking in scientific inquiry terms. That's awesome. <laughs> Bring it on. Let's do that some more. And so the idea, what, what, um, I had been on a, a podcast and I was asked if we ever, if we, if I have thought that we'd ever close the gender pay gap in our lifetime. And I said, well, not till we make it an economic issue. And then I thought, oh, I think I can do that. And so our hypothesis at Pipeline was that if we looked at the economic opportunity of equity, not just equity is the right thing to do, yeah. we could actually excuse me, change the conversation and massively accelerate our time to equity. Yeah. And so we are around the economic opportunity of equity. We actually started with research. We did a research study across 29 com- 29 countries, 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, Yep. So, so, so intersectionality is in when you identify with multiple marginalized identities. So, yeah. uh, so a, a woman who also identifies as black, who also identifies as LGBTQIA, those are layered, uh, layered identities of marginalization. And so you have, they, they require special care. Sorry. Just wanted to, just wanted to make that yeah. clear. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think for, you know, for folks, um, to, 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 and then I'll talk about what we found, but what, what is really important 
to understand and maybe will is that we do not all have the same starting line. Sure. If you're a heterosexual white woman, you have a different starting line than a black woman. You have right. a different starting line than an LGBTQ Latina. Like if, and then if you're over the age of 30, like all of those things affect where your starting line is. That's why the intersectional lens matters. Well, and I, I think it's important to note, and it, it, I love so much that I'm talking to you because I'm like, yay, we can speak the same language. Uh, but I, I do think that it's really, really important to note that as you are navigating intersectional identities, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that the default uh, identity is always the one that takes historic precedence. So, so I'm, and I'm going to give an example of this for our listeners. So, so just as a for instance. Uh, back in, uh, it was about a year ago, we celebrated the 100 year anniversary of the women's right to, to vote, uh, to women's suffrage in the United States. And everybody was all excited about it, talking about how awesome it was that, you know, hey, 100 years, that's amazing. But what you have to remember is that we were actually marking a very different milestone. We were marking the anniversary of white women getting the vote. And so you have this dominant narrative that takes over and it completely ignores the fact that most women of color didn't have unfettered access to voting until the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And even then, you're, you're dealing with, with communities that often deal with redlining and uh, voter suppression and, you know, rules and regulations that are, are definitely racially based. And so we have to, and I'm so sorry, I'm going on this late tangent. It's okay. Uh, but I just, I, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that when we're talking about issues of gender equity and we introduce intersectionality, we have to change the way we have these conversations and make sure that we are acknowledging the very hidden harm that we can cause by completely ignoring someone else's lived experience. Right, Katika? Are you with me? <laughs> I'm with you. I, I will <laughs> add two quick things on that. And then I'll tell your, the, yeah, your leaders. We actually our research. Um, one is that the other piece around the centennial of the 19th Amendment is that in 2013, the Supreme Court decided a case which essentially struck the validity of Article 4, which was the main reinforcement for Article 5 which uh, were essentially all of the, and I'm doing this at a high level, but yeah. all of the uh, efforts in historically discriminatory voting districts uh, to block people from voting. And we have seen that uh, play out in the 2020 elections and the uh, number, like the number of millions of people have been removed from voter rolls uh, so, so it's really important to understand that um, 1965 has actually now been rolled back, right? And so uh, we we are in an election year. I know that we're, this is not a political for, uh, podcast. Go ahead however, and say it. They, they, however, they give me a little bit of latitude here. So, so go ahead. Yeah. However, <laughs> if we are truly to be a democracy where every yeah. voice is heard and every voice matters, and we are a beacon of light for the world, which was what was represented to my parents 
then we have to end voting and having your voice heard is foundational to democracy. Right. Nothing, no other issue matters if you cannot be heard. Right. And so that understanding that not only like we have rolled back the progress that was fought for in 1965 to ensure that all women had the right to vote. Yep. And a, a it is ongoing. It is a complicated, deeply harmful, uh, you know, systemic form of systemic oppression that that we impose. And so, yeah, I, I just feel that let's have these conversations. And that that's why Katika is here today. Now, one of the reasons that Katika <laughs> is here today is uh, because of the generosity of our sponsors. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. And we know that building a software team can be hard. Finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, however. When you visit Fullscale.io, you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. It is just that easy. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. Now, friends, <laughs> I am, I, oh man, this, this is, these are the kinds of conversations that fuels me. So Katika, you're going to have to forgive me. I'm just, I'm getting so excited. No worries. Um, but, but let's go ahead and hop right back into it. Now, I know I'm, I'm going to pull an audible here, Katika, and you're going to have to, you're just going to have to bear with me. Uh, guests, friends, listeners in pre-show prep, I usually tell our, our speakers and our guests that, the episode title doesn't really matter. We can always change it if we end up having a different conversation, but I'm actually going to ask the question in the episode title because I, it's the question that I really, really want to ask you, Katika, and I'm going to ask you, why does intersectionality matter? So I, I will top line it and then I'm going to go into some details. Let's, so, let's get granular. <laughs> so intersection, intersectionality matters so that to your point, what you were talking about, that we people are not invisible. If yeah. you as a company focus on, for instance, gender equity as one pillar, racial equity as another pillar, what happens is that you leave women of color out. Because if you do not look through the intersectional lens, then your gender equity efforts will be focused on white women. Right. And your racial equity efforts will be largely focused on black men. Right. Not that it's not important. However, women and women of women of color will be left behind. I want to share a couple more pieces. Um, just one quick thing. In our research that we did, and we've collected over a billion data points since then, what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there's a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. What Pipeline is, and then I'll talk about what we found through an intersectional lens, is sure. augmented decision making. So much like you would use Google Maps or Waze to get from point A to point B, we actually do the very same thing, but for companies, people decisions. So we actually get in front of the decision uh, before it's made. So internal hiring, mobility, pay, performance, potential, and promotion, run those decisions through our algorithms. And if we find any inequity, we make a recommendation. So for instance, in my 
experience, like with my um, story around fighting to be paid equitably, I never would have had that experience had the company had pipeline because my pay would have been run through the pipeline platform and they would have said, there's a gap here. From an intersectional lens, one of the things that we found is that the promotion gap doubles for Black women. So we measure upward mobility. And what we found is that on average, men are promoted at a rate of 21% greater than women. Yeah. When you look at that through an intersectional lens, so specifically for Black women, that gap actually doubles. That is, men are promoted at a rate of 42% greater than black women. That's crazy. I So what let's talk about let's talk about data though because you're we're talking mm-hmm. about very serious pressing issues. And again, I like I keep on wanting to add context. So listeners just bear with me here. But one of the things that we have to remember is that the data has shown time and time again that organizations that employ and use and leverage diverse teams perform better. Uh, and so, so there's a bottom line benefit, right, Katika? Yeah, and we focus on the top line, but yes, yeah, we focus on top line revenue. Well, so, so, but there, there, there is a clear demonstrable benefit to employing diverse teams, and yet still there is a gap. So, talk to us about why that might be, and what, in particular, what pipeline can do to help eradicate that. Our system, our workplaces are inequitable by default. Sure. They do not value everyone equitably. So I was an executive before I launched Pipeline, clearly very committed to equity, but I had to choose to be equitable, right? Right. What Pipeline does is actually flip that so that companies that have Pipeline are equitable by default. And what I mean by that is that all of those decisions running through the pipeline platform, if I receive a recommendation as a manager and uh, it's recommending, for instance, hey, uh, Lauren needs to be paid, you need to change Lauren, you need to increase Lauren's pay and she needs to be paid in this range. I may have a good reason to reject that recommendation But if I am rejecting that recommendation, I am choosing to be inequitable. Right. That is a very different decision-making model. And because of that, what we have actually found is that on average, companies who use the pipeline platform increase equity by 67% in the first three months on the platform. Wow. What does that look like? <laughs> so let me, uh, you know, we often talk about the gender pay gap. Uh, here's uh, here's the thing that we found, and then I'll I'll talk about what that looks like. We've actually found that pay is the symptom; it's not the disease. In other words, pay is the quantitative value that companies place in their talent on their talent, but the actual value happens before that in performance and potential. So on average, the average Fortune Fortune 500 company has 60,000 employees and they make three key decisions across their talent each year, which is performance, potential, and pay. So that's 180,000 opportunities to move toward equity each and every year. 
that's what we make possible. And that's where we see companies have those huge leaps forward from where they currently are to actually um, achieving equity. And we have the ROI, the return on investment actually built in, in terms of revenue and what that means in terms of the economic footprint of the company. Whew. That those are those are impressive statistics, and and the fact that you have been able to to create a platform that's able to deliver that consistently is, I I, I want to take a moment to honor that. Like I'm, I'm like standing up and cheering in my heart, so I'm giving you a little round of applause. I don't know if you can hear that, but, but I can you. hear that. Thank you <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, anytime, anytime you need to be uh, gassed up a little bit and encouraged, I am here. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Well, so let me ask you this. I, I One of the things that I love to do is uh, help our the entrepreneurs and the founders and the folks who are you know forming companies, because I, I firmly believe, and I think you'd probably back me on this, that the best diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging uh, initiatives, they're the ones that are baked in from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, at every level of your organization, you mm-hmm. have to be very mindful and you have to intentionally set goals and milestones around your diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, right? Mm-hmm. So, so talk to us and talk to the folks at home. I'm asking you to talk, talk right to them. Tell them what are some things that they can do right now to increase their, their equity, their, uh, the psychological safety for, for any mm-hmm. marginalized folks that they might employ? Like what does, what are some things that they can do? I'm going to first tell them what they can stop doing and then I'll tell okay. them what they can do. Yes, do that. Ooh. Ooh, yes, so, let's do that then. <laughs> we need to um, we need to move away from checkbox to diversity. So just to give you a sense, companies spend $8 billion annually on unconscious bias training. And yeah. um, that's an example. It makes us feel like we're making progress, but it actually doesn't work. Yeah. And it can, and because it puts forward stereotypes, it can actually make equity worse. So first, stop doing that. There's a much better way to deploy well, that well, capital. Your hands if you put it out here. Don't do that. Stop it. <laughs> stop that. And there's a much better way to deploy that capital. Yeah. And, and, and I'll talk about that. I'll also talk about some of the things that they can do. So the two things uh, that we actually need in terms of equitable solutions are AI-powered equity and equitable skilling. So obviously AI-powered equity is what Pipeline is, uh, running decisions through a a, a system to um, augment them to ensure that they're equitable. Well, because because moving it through a a totally unbiased system removes that unconscious bias at at every organizational level, right? Right. That's right. And, And especially at scale, it's not you know, you can't do that with humans. Right. The second um, piece is equitable skilling. So uh, just to give you to level set this, skilling has been talked about for quite a long time. Yeah. But one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that we actually leaped forward five years in terms of digital acceleration. Yeah. And so that the jobs that were available in February, 2020, are not the jobs that are available now, not one for one, right? Obviously some of them are the same, but not one for one. Most of those are in the future of work. Yeah. And so we need to ensure uh, two things when it comes to equitable skilling. One 
is that women have equitable access to skilling opportunities. So when companies are training people or uh, looking at boot camps or any of those things, that they're ensuring that access to those programs are equitable. That's one. Yeah. Just as one piece, one data point, most women uh, cannot afford, and it's not only women, but cannot afford to go to a tech boot camp, a coding boot camp, and not be paid. Right. It's just not economically feasible. That's one example. Yeah. Uh, and then the second is, and you you talked about hostile work environment. The second is actually ensuring that women have equitable access to apply their skills. Sure. What we have found, it not not pipeline, but what the research shows, is that half of all women in STEM, so science, technology, edu- uh, engineering, and math, will leave in the first ten years because of a hostile work environment. Yep. And so we have to ensure that those two pieces are there. And even if you don't care about equity, um, you need to do this as an employer from a labor market perspective. Right. Because right now in the United States, there are almost two jobs open for every person looking for work. And as of, um, well, I know you, so, uh, right. Well, so we, and right now there are fewer women in the labor force, uh, than there were at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. I was actually gonna, gonna ask you about that. I have like three different directions that I want to go. So I'm going to revisit <laughs> a couple of things. Sure. Uh, well, cause I wanted to pop in there, but you were on a roll. Uh, so one of the things that I want, you mentioned that, you know, we took a five-year leap forward as far as digital yeah. access, which is, you know, great. One of those really weird, unexpected, kind of positive side effects of enduring a global pandemic. But one of the things that also happened at the dawn of the pandemic was uh, women in particular, and in particular, intersectional women of color, Mm -hmm. like further marginalized women, uh, experienced a a really, really significant or a few really, really significant steps back. Um, A lot of women and, um, you know, marginalized individuals, they were primary caregivers for children. They had to, you know, go, they had to figure out virtual schooling, um, you know, childcare, things like that. When we're talking about equitable access, folks, we're not just talking money, although that's a huge part of it. We're also Mm -hmm. talking things like time and geography. And when we, so when we're discussing access, you need to make sure that your, your initiatives are accessible from all angles, not just cost. Right. So talk to us a little bit about the, the COVID, uh, you know, the, the great resignation, the great, uh, she session is, is what I heard it called. I don't know if I love it, but talk to us a little bit about that. (sighs) <sighs> how much time just a little have? bit <laughs> <laughs> i published one of the first articles about the impact that covid i predicting the impact that covid19 would have on gender equity yeah it was published by fast company um and then a follow-on with nbc so currently uh we currently have seven hundred sixty thousand fewer women in the labor force than we did in February 2020, before the pandemic. Yeah. To give you a sense of why that matters from an economic perspective, uh, we uh, women added $2 trillion 
to uh, the U.S. GDP yeah. from 1970 to 2016 through their increased labor force participation, we st- still sit at 29 years of progress lost in terms of women's labor force participation rate. Yeah. And in terms of real dollars, that's a trillion dollars that we've just drained out of the economy because of the impact on women. I want, if you'll give me just another minute, Lauren, I want to address the conversation around women and childcare. Not that it doesn't matter. It does. The issue is that women are the breadwinners and 40% of us households with children under the age of 18. There are 16 million breadwinner moms like myself who support 28 million children. They do not have the choice to leave the labor force because this this narrative around like women can leave the labor force um, or why they're leaving the labor force uh, is connected to uh, a the myth of secondary income, which is that women's income is just for purses and shoes. Right. And that's not true. It's for things like housing and healthcare and food. Yeah. And so we and we need to uh, make sure that the solutions that we're putting forward, childcare and paid leave certainly are important. Don't get me wrong, sure. but they are not the only solutions that will bring women. And I, I'm not saying, Lauren, that you said that just for people who've heard this in the common narrative, because it's, it's talked a lot about in the media, they are not the only solutions that will bring women back into the labor force and help us um, realize wait, 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 the wait. economic opportunity. of Now, you know that you just introduced a topic that I'm going to have to drill down on though, right? <laughs> Of course. You know, you know that you. this is your fault. I blame you. <laughs> I will take full responsibility. But I, I'm going to have to ask, what are, some, what are some alternative solutions that maybe we're not talking about enough? We need equity in the labor force. We need, for instance, uh, let me just give you a, a few stats. Yeah. Women are 57% of all college graduates. 58, excuse me. Yeah. 47%. I was, say, I was like, wait, wait, wait. 58. It's like a significant margin. Yeah. 58%. <laughs> uh, they used to be 57. That changed in the last couple of years. 58% of all college graduates, 47% of our labor force, and 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs. Right. Uh, Those and are significant more when you're talking about women of color. And then it, like, I mean, the stat, like, honestly, it's, it's alarming how consistent uh, these numbers are. I mean, so just the other day I was talking about nonprofits and like something like 70% of nonprofit team members are women. Mm-hmm. And yet only, I believe, 20% of nonprofit le- executive directors, leadership, board of directors are are women. And it's like, how is that even possible? We have bias when you, yeah, like we have a pipeline. There's it's right there. The pipeline is right there. How are we not availing ourselves of it? It's and why the bias. <laughs> yeah, and it's why the whole pipeline argument is uh, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. It's just not true. Yeah. Uh, same thing happens in healthcare and retail, etc. Yeah. Um, the other piece is that women make up the majority of all of uh, minimum wage workers in the United States. Yeah. And they are seventy percent of the lowest paid workers in the United States. Yeah. And so those are two very real examples of inequity. And our government, I know this is a, our government has done a very bad job of ensuring equity in their policies. We often assume that public policy, whether that's legislation or the execution of, le- of, um, of new laws, 
uh, and policies um, as gender neutral. It's not. It's it's gender ignorant. And we should look no farther than our neighbor to the north, Canada, which has realized this and adopted gender budgeting so that and and what they call GBA, which is gender budgeting analysis. So they actually understand the impact that any policy will have on both women and men and and obviously non-binary. So we we need to we need to ensure that also our public policy is taking equity into account. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things, and, and, and I'm going to have to ask you the human question here in a minute, sure. but this is going to be my PSA for our friends listening at home, because this is actually, so I, I consult on the side uh, when I'm not, you know, crazy busy. And, and more often than not, it's um, it tech companies coming to me and asking, hey, why aren't women applying for these positions? And I, you know, I always kind of come back with, well, I have about eight thoughts right off the top of my head. Happy mm-hmm. to talk about it. But the fact is, uh, and this is for you listeners at home, what, the thing that you have to realize is that to realize the benefits of representation and inclusion at your particular workplace, you have to be ready to invest in it. Uh, mm-hmm. True inclusion and equity always, 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 this is my promise to you, always takes more time, more resources, more staff, more money, more, more everything. But in order to, in order to really do it and do it right, you're going to have to invest in it. And so one of my first questions to my onboarding clients is, Hey, if I make these recommendations and if I go through and I audit your systems and help you figure some things out and make some suggestions, are you prepared to actually act on it? Are you prepared to reserve that budget and to to work with experts who can help you get you where you need to be? Because I promise you, it's not an easy process, even though it is extremely worthwhile. Uh, so, so I just want to throw that out there. Katika, <laughs> what do you think? Is that- I agree. I, w- I agree. I would add on uh, two quick things. Yep. Okay. One is uh, the willingness to be uncomfortable. Yes. Oh, you- please embrace discomfort. <laughs> Nine out of 10 of us, regardless of our, our gender, are bias against women. Sure. And so, uh, so we have to embrace discomfort in uh, realizing our own bias and um, ensuring that when people speak up, they are not penalized for that yeah. and that we hear them. So it's an uncomfortable process. For and sure. the other thing is that very question of, well, why aren't more women applying for this job is the very issue with a lot of the, the solutions. <laughs> yeah. Because we assume that women are broken, that they don't know how to be in the labor force. So it's applying for jobs or ending the uptick in their speech or, yeah. you know, are all you, of those but- things. But in reality, the question you should be asking yourself is why, what can my organization do to better reach out to speak to build relationships with the women that I want to hire? And so what, you, what can you do? What are, what are you doing? Do you need to you know, reach out to women-focused organizations? Do you, what extra work do you need to do? to to make women feel psychologically safe and comfortable in your environment, right? And that they have equity of opportunity. Most of the solutions we have about gender diversity in the workplace are about fixing women and women are not broken. The system is broken. Companies need to focus on fixing the system so that women who look at those companies have two experiences. 
One, they can actually see a career path for themselves. So they see people and lots of them who look right. like them. Well, and, and they, can, s- they can find mentorship. And I, I hate mentorship, but mentorship, here's why I don't hate it, but it's a, it has, it has that assumption that I don't know what I'm doing because I'm female rather than I already earned. I didn't get the female MBA. I got the MBA. Right. I didn't get the degree in, I didn't get the female degree in software engineering. I got the degree in software engineering. So I like sponsorship better because it already assumes I have everything. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, so how do we feel about championship at this point? Like, Ch- yeah, championship, like sponsorship, like putting, but, but the other thing I would say, like, if you just want to look at the applying for jobs thing, which, which, you know, we say, oh, you know, there's that common stat of like women will only apply if they have a hundred percent and men, if they have 60, but that's only half the story. The other half of the story is that people, the people sitting on the other side of the table are using the very same criteria. That is, if you have five candidates for a role and one is a woman, she doesn't have a 20% chance of getting the job. She has zero because of bias. Your job as companies in fixing the system is to ensure that she has at the very least the 20%. Right. Yeah. All right. All right. We, so we have already, we have gone over time, my friend. And this has been a, a fabulous conversation that I'm like watching the clock and I'm just like, I don't want to stop. I still have one more question, but I do have one more question for you. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah, okay. I'm ready. I am going to ask you, because uh, I really, really want to know, <laughs> who who is your hero? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I want to know. Well, you mentioned Gloria Steinem and I was like, oh, hero. Yes. So your your previous statement inspired the human question today. <laughs> I know I love Gloria. I mean, I think if you if you have the context around um her, you know, and I I will actually, but I'm not going to choose her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, pick someone um, else. <laughs> man, it's hard. So uh, can I pick two? I you know I no, I pick no, only I can't only one. Oh, that's so well. Hard. And this this is my best. <laughs> I know. Um. You know, I, I, uh, man, that's so hard. Cause there are two and for, diff- for two different reasons. Um, who came to your mind first? So I, um, I, I'm going to, I, I'm going to, uh, <laughs> okay. So, you know, for me, um, uh, what, the person that's so hard to like choose one because they both matter. Okay. It's not, so, this, um, is, this is not supposed am, to be a high stress situation. I know, I know, <laughs> but they, they matter for different reasons. Um, you know, I, uh, am going to choose Michelle Obama and not for the reason that most people think. Not um, for her arms. <laughs> no, no. What I am, what Michelle Obama for folks who may not know was actually the breadwinner of the Obama household before Barack became president. Yeah. And, um, and so most folks don't know that. I think I I actually knew that. (laughs) Um, yeah, the, and the reason is I remember in the primaries, um, when, um, uh, Barack Obama was running for president, Michelle was at some kind of picnic or something. And, she talked about uh, essentially what it was like to be a mom in 
in the in the paid labor force because all moms work, not all moms get paid. Right. And this um, and and she what she said was, when I'm at work, I'm thinking about my kids. When I'm with with my kids, I'm thinking about work. And it was the first time for me. I mean, I actually voted for him because of her. Yeah. It was the first time in my entire lifetime that somebody who had my experience was like represented that perspective. Yeah. And it was so important because historically we've kind of put moms into like the mom guilt, like moms being feeling guilty because they're away from their kids. Yeah. But it's not, it's, it's, um, it, that's half the story yeah. for a lot of us breadwinner moms in particular, we also always have the gnawing in the back of our head of when we're with our kids thinking about work. And that's not socially acceptable. Right. People don't like to hear it, but it is the truth. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. And she's definitely a hero of mine as well. So, so thank you for sharing that. And, and thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Okay. That, that's always, that's always my like super secret goal. <laughs> like, Hey, I want my guests to say that they had fun. Uh, you know, and, and another fun thing, folks, I, I got to tell you, uh, full scale is fun because if you are stressing about a software development product that you are trying to bring to market and you need to hire some software engineers, uh, full scale can help. And that that is super fun. We love it when people can take things off an entrepreneur's plate. Full scale has the people in the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit fullscale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and then let the platform match you up with fully vetted, highly experienced software engineers, testers, and leaders. At Full scale, they specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Learn more when you visit fullscale.io. Friends, uh, really, really hoping that you will take a look at Startup Hustle TV. Go to youtube.com and search for Startup Hustle. We have a whole channel of webisodes dedicated to, to telling the real stories of entrepreneurship through the eyes of Startup Hustle hosts like myself, like Heather, like Matt, like Matt other Matt. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a really fun thing to do and we hope that you enjoy it. So definitely check it out. We are very, very thankful for you coming back week after week, friends. Keep on listening. We love telling these stories for you and we will catch you on the flip side. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.